Hello, everyone. Happy December 20th or December 21st or whenever you're hearing this. We're back with another episode. This is the Mississippi Mississippi Mass Choir. And uh, today's episode is going to be a little different. We're going to talk about some stuff that you need to know. But uh, we did a, we, I did an interview with a guy. Man, I was super nervous about this interview, but... Uh, we're going strong on this podcast. We're starting off strong. Um, bringing out the big hitters. Did a podcast, did an interview with a guy from a podcast I listened to. I've been listening to a ton over the last, I don't know, two years maybe. And um, yeah, I was nervous. I was nervous. Um, you know, when you when you listen to a podcast and you hear someone talk for hours and hours in your head and then suddenly like that person, you know, you're interacting with that person. It's really weird. It's a really, really weird situation but anyways hunter Motts and brian callen uh it used to be the brian callen show and now it's mixed mental arts and um we talk a little bit about um yeah thinking about your brain about a lot of um uh, a lot of science uh that hasn't really hasn't really been adopted by most most um most people or hasn't been adopted even necessarily by the scientific community um, just a lot of book ideas that uh, need to get out, a lot of important books that have been um, really influential in my life, but more importantly, uh, in Hunter and Brian's life, and they talk about, anyways, they talk about the books. They talk about, Hunter talks about the books, talks about what they're trying to do. They created this, um, I don't know, this movement, this thing, this place called Mixed Mental Arts. Uh, it's basically building a, building a framework of how to think for your, for your brain, building a building a thinking framework anyways we do this interview and um i again i was man i was nervous at the beginning but we got we got into it i i loosened up a little bit and hunter you know as usual he just he can just he can just go he can you just turn on the microphone and he just keeps going so um so a lot of good stuff so um just you know hang in there and just know that there's stuff in here that that you need to know um especially um, related to how we think and why we disagree. And, and we talk a little bit about the relationship between, uh, science and faith and, um, just like, you know, like, like why there seems to be all these, all this division, liberals and conservatives or Democrats and Republicans or, um, fundamentalists and, and, uh, people who think, think they aren't fundamentalists and science and faith. So anyways, great conversation, great dialogue, and, um, really enjoyed it. So here's the interview. Hope you enjoy this. Yeah, tell me what you think. I'm, I'm good to go. Ready to already recording. Awesome. Hello, Hunter. Thank you so, thank you so much for doing this. Like, I feel I'm very, very excited to be talking to you right now. And uh, yeah, just welcome, welcome to this thing. Well, thanks for having me at this thing. Um, and I mean, you know, that's uh, that's what's great about the internet is that. Uh, people who um, are having particular sh- shared shared experiences in this uh, very interesting time in which we live uh, can find each other regardless of geography, and we can compare notes and find ways to work together to help solve problems. Yeah, and so the coolest part about all of this was the whole podcast medium and finding you guys. I had an hour and a half commute uh, both ways to and from work for like a year. And I think this was around, I think this was like maybe two, two, two years ago, maybe a year and a half ago. Um, but I came across 
what was then the Brian Callen show, and I felt like I, you know, like I felt like I was there as things were evolving. That's what added to the whole experience was I felt like the conversation started evolving in a particular direction, and I like I could not contain these podcasts like i would listen to these podcasts and immediately come home and like have to talk to my wife about all of these i think we're figuring out like there's all this new science we're figuring this stuff out like this is why we argued in college with our friends about this and like this is why you know and it just was it just was so crazy so anyways i'm a long long time uh fan of the show i feel like i've heard like days worth of audio of you and brian talking so this is crazy it's it's just so cool to be able to talk to you why don't you why don't you just for the people for like the three people who don't know um who you are uh uh, why don't you where are you from originally yeah well i think there's probably a lot more than three people who have no idea who i am um but the uh yeah no i my uh my mom is from Kansas City. My dad it grew up in Arnhem in uh, the south of the Netherlands of Holland. And um, my dad worked for Citibank. And so we grew up all over. the. I grew up traveling all over the world. I was born in Saudi Arabia, lived in Brazil, lived in Greece, lived in England, uh, you know, just all over the place. And then um, Brian Callen, uh, stand-up comedian extraordinaire, uh, you know, famous for his role on Pool Boy as Pool Boy on Mad TV, um, was his dad was my dad's boss. So the first house that I went to after being born was the Callan household. Wow. So Brian and I have literally known each other our entire lives. And, you know, just because Brian was uh, buddies with Joe, sort of, you know, got into this whole podcasting thing. He had a podcast. And then um, (laughs) Brian and I would talk about books and like, you know, L.A. uh, Brian has a friend, Dove Davidoff, a stand up comedian who has this great thing about being in L.A. And he's like. Moving to L.A. is like swimming with dolphins. Like you get in and you're like, there are all these beautiful, magical creatures around me. It's so amazing. And then, you know, you're, you know, and then after about half an hour, you're like, I'm wet and cold and bored. I just want a book. Somebody please throw me a book. So Brian and I would sit around and we'd read all these books and we talk about all these books. And I was like, you know, Brian, you're like kind of famous, like your podcast without you even really trying gets all these downloads why don't we get some of these academics on? And he was like, wait a minute, you think these like scientists and authors would want to talk? I'm like, probably like, yeah. I don't any- think anybody like really reads their books or talks about yeah, their or, books. Yeah. Or invites and, them on an interview or anything like that. Right. Like they, they're not getting a whole yeah. lot of press for these books sometimes. So our whole thing was like, we want to talk to them. Uh, we have download numbers. Why not just have them on and we'll expose people to these ideas who probably wouldn't get exposed to them. And it was like, I mean, the amazing thing about this show is that I think for the first three, four years, we were just so focused on having interesting conversations and just figuring things out that we didn't even realize that anybody was listening. I mean, like you, you see the download numbers and it's this very hypothetical thing. Like yeah. there are statistics that say people are listening. But then the last year has really been like actually connecting with the people out there and being like, oh, there's some like really interesting people that listen to this thing. And oh, they really appreciate that we don't pretend to know everything. Yeah. And it's what I really appreciate is this weird combination that you and Brian are because you're you are not foreign to the academic world, but you're also you're also not foreign to Brian's world. I mean, I think when when you went to California, I mean, you started getting into the acting scene and that's what 
kind of cause this uh, kintsugi, I guess, is the phrase, like the cause this like disconnection between what you had learned in the academic world and then what you're experiencing among, you know, the more free spirited um, people that you're experiencing in acting school and stuff like that, right? Yeah, well, I mean, the uh, you know, can I can I use the f bomb on this? Uh, Go for it. I guess. So I, what I, I what I've been fond of saying in the in the last couple of weeks is that Brian and I have been trying to unfuck ourselves, and that we both got fucked up in complimentary ways. Yeah. So you know, Brian as a kid, you know, didn't feel like he was particularly smart or academic, and so he focused on sports and comedy, and you know being entertaining and funny. And I, on the other hand, was like, I live in the world of books and ideas and the brain and all of that sort of stuff. And I don't feel comfortable around sports or anything like that. And so it really has been this sort of big undoing project as we sort of, you know, tried to like shake each other and help each other realize, no, this thing you don't think you can do, you can do. And like, just sort of rubbing off on each other and sort of picking up different things from each other. And I mean, really, it, what it comes down to is there's this great uh, Marshall McLuhan quote who says, which says, anyone who thinks there's a distinction between education and entertainment doesn't understand the first thing about either. Mm, mm, and yeah. Man, I love that. that's, that's, I mean, that's the reality is, and this is sort of, you know, with the, with everything, you know, cause I co-wrote the straight in conspiracy with Katie O'Brien. And like, that was also so much of it was that we were like, the reality is, is that if you look at most history textbooks and you like put it in front of a, you know somebody in the entertainment industry or somebody who was in charge of marketing and you were like, okay, how many eyeballs do you think this this textbook would get in the like free market? And they'd be like zero. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like no one would read this thing, and it's just not entertaining. And that's not how any of these things need to be. Um, I mean, Dan Carlin has done, you know, such a good job of making so much entertaining. And so that's really, you know, where the Mixed Mental Arts Project is now evolving to. And the exciting thing is, is that, like, if you go and watch Brian's stand up today, you're like, wait a minute. These are all ideas from Mixed Mental Arts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, so and you know, he's yeah. So, I mean, so that's 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 really sort of where this thing is going now. So where do you, where do you start? I mean, I'm trying to figure out when I try to explain to people what it is that I'm getting out of these podcasts and then what, what the idea of mixed mental arts, I never know. Where do you start? Do you start with, with intuition versus, um, rationale? Like, like I never know where I, I always end up just vomiting a ton of author names, a ton of books, and a ton of, <laughs> di- and and like I just vomit it all together, and I never really know where. How do you start when someone's like, like, what is it that you guys are trying to do? Well, I think you know that's what I've done for the last three hundred episodes. Is just vomit a ton of author names. Yeah, yeah. And you know, you you get exposed to these ideas, and you're like, these are so powerful. Yes. Everyone needs to know these. And then the challenge is, yeah, how do you communicate them in a way? that is accessible and that people can get them and doesn't require them to read 150 books. Like ultimately we want people to read those books and we want them to have that experience. But you know, that's sort of something that we've been struggling with for the last year in particular. And you know, what we've really sort of come down to is how do we make smart convenient? Hmm. And that's really our goal is that, you know, people are busy. Uh, they, you know, don't, have they have to like pay their bills they have kids to take care of maybe they have aging parents whatever it may be 
And the, you know, Brian and I have had the luxury and the opportunity to go and read all these books and interview all these authors, but not everybody is going to have that opportunity. And so now what we're really focusing on is, okay, we read all these books, we interviewed all these authors, what conclusions can we draw? And so that's why we're doing the mixed mental arts belt system, which is basically going to be these nine core ideas that um, we think that everybody needs in the 21st century in order to, um, you know, navigate the world and uh, just handle this this time of humanity's first family dinner. So where where, where do you I mean, do you start with the brain? Because for me, the 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 idea that really hooked me um, and it it obviously it came from this place that I felt very personally, you know, we'd in college, we'd have all of these, you know, very philosophically minded uh, friends. And, you know, we, it, we just really enjoyed um, talking about ideas and, and presumably trying to be rational. And I remember um, some of our friends really enjoyed anytime someone said, I feel like, um, mm. like a friend would just come just like barreling in just like, like heretic do not say i feel like you think you know and and people are so proud of that distinction and it always bothered me on a weird level like i i I didn't know why i couldn't explain why um because there was something very um there was there was something that i did experience that felt like feeling when i was thinking uh and so then when you know hearing you guys talk about uh that our brains aren't as rational as we would like to um to imagine was really like Man, that that roped me in, and from then on, uh, like everything else, kind of was dominoes for me. Do you guys start at the brain, or like, or maybe you can yes. just talk about that idea? Yeah, I could. I mean, well, so firstly, the idea that thinking and feeling are always linked—that's mm-hmm. um, the green belt. Okay. Um, so you know, you're just—I mean, the fact that you know you got the green belt right off the bat. I'm I mean, advanced. that's that's dance. It's so impressive. What's the, so what's the white belt? So the white belt is just, you know, asking people, what is your culture? Oh, right? okay, gotcha. So, you know, everybody has a culture, but the nature of culture is because of this thing that, you know, uh, John Haidt calls naive realism, what the Buddhists called Maya, that, you know, we download this culture from our environment, from our parents, from the people around us. And then at a certain point, it just makes so much sense to us. And that's how we see the world. And then anybody who sees the world different comes off as like crazy or nuts or biased by their ideology or there's something wrong with them. Um, and so the first step is just realizing, yes, you have a culture. And if you can see how powerfully culture shapes the choices and the thoughts of all the other humans on the planet, well, then guess what? It does the same thing for you. Yeah, and it makes, uh, you, makes you a lot more empathetic towards other. You're, you're not like, I can't believe someone would do that. Um, you're a little yeah. bit more empathetic towards it. Well, and you're a, lot, a little bit more humble, which is a lot of what we're trying to create. Mm. Um, and so, you know, the yellow belt is culture binds and blinds. And so culture, you know, helps bind people into groups, but it also bl- creates blind spots and it blinds them to other ways of seeing the world. Um, and every culture has its blind spots. And the, the problem is, is that those blind spots mess us up in ways that we don't even realize because we're just so blind to them and especially if we're just surrounded in an echo chamber of people who think the same way that we do Mm. um so that's the yellow belt and then the orange belt is the tribe or dunbar number um so 
basically every everything on every animal on the planet has a natural group size and uh robin dunbar figured out that the natural uh group size for humans is about 150 relationships so you know we all had this very exciting experience when we first got on facebook where it was like i can have 10,000 friends this yeah. is so cool <laughs> yeah. and then you know, the the reality of our sort of neurological limits hit. And, you know, in a few years, there are people floating up on your Facebook feed. Like, and you're who like, is this? Who is this? And I'm friends with them? Yeah. That's so fascinating. Yeah, what's more creepy now is when, it's, when it gives you the memories now. And it's like, hey, you guys became friends five years ago. Here's a picture of you two. And you're like, I, I, <laughs> I don't know when I was at this place with this person. <laughs> So, and that the reality is, is that, you know, that means that most people are strangers to us. Um, and, you know, we have to stereotype in order to make sense of people. And um, I think you, you mentioned when we, we chatted briefly on Twitter that you're a Catholic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's, let's get into things that were very uncomfortable for me to confront. Uh, which is that Jesus had figured out a lot of this stuff 2,000 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, I mean, if you take take the story of the Good Samaritan, mm-hmm. um, you know, so you've got this, this lawyer comes along who wants to justify himself and wants to basically rationalize his prejudices and show how smart he is and all of that sort of stuff. And, you know, he says, Jesus, what is the law? And Jesus says... Uh, well, how do you understand it, right? Mm. He's not even like telling him what he thinks because he knows that if whatever he says, this guy is going to like try and trap him and trick him. Yeah. And so he gets the guy and the guy says, love thy neighbor as thyself. And then he's like, well, go and do that then, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the, the guy says, but who is my neighbor? And then he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And it's a story that's perfectly designed to violate someone's stereotypes like jesus is dealing with the dunbar number because he's taking he's bringing into conflict what you believe about the samaritans who are supposedly the nemeses of judeans everywhere and um you know just showing that if the person behaves better and happens to be a samaritan then what matters is the behavior Mm. and He's creating, he's, I mean, what Jesus is doing, what we would now call is creating deliberate cognitive dissonance um, for the lawyer. And he's basically, you know, essentially triggering the lawyer so that the lawyer has to become aware of his feelings and then has to confront and reflect on those thing, feelings. And that's where we get into the green belt. And the green belt is that thinking and feeling are always linked. So, um, and, and you know, so, well, real quick. So, um, is the, is the dissonance oftentimes is when someone has two competing values or two competing, like mm-hmm. intuitive, like either the value of sacredness and the value of, I don't know, being kind to your neighbor or the, the value of, um, the purity, I guess, maybe of the Samaritans, but then this other intuitive feeling of, um, I need to love all, all of my neighbors. Is that kind of what's happening? Well, he's, yeah, he's bringing into conflict basically the lawyer's tribal feelings about we're the good guys, the Samaritans are jerks, yeah. with like the the stated principles of the lawyer's own most cherished beliefs mm-hmm. that come from the Torah or the Talmud or whatever it may be, mm-hmm. um, and that he has to. It's basically you know you have to reflect on. You know what matters more: your petty tribalism or your principles. Yeah, yeah. 
And, you know, that's in general, I mean, that was in terms of the conflict that was created for me, a lot of it came down to reading, uh, like it was a, it was a lot of scientific books, but you know, the one that really laid me low was John Hyde's happiness hypothesis Yeah, because, you know, uh, for somebody sort of coming from, and I think it's important to distinguish between science as a method for testing your beliefs and then science as tribe. Um, but you know, someone coming from the tribe of science, who's like, we're the good guys. We figured it all out. Like everything before us was worthless. We're yeah. amazing. You know, the whole because science crowd. Mm-hmm. Yep. To read something like John Hyde's happiness hypothesis and then be like, wait a minute, I, it feels like this guy who's like way deeper into science than I am. Like he's way smarter than I am, and it really seems like he's saying we reinvented the wheel. And that a lot of these things, you know, were just not expressed in a form that we could understand or appreciate. So, you know, Jesus says, uh, you know, you see the splinter in your brother's lie, but you don't see the log in your own. Right. And, you know, if you just sort of look at that quickly and you're like, whatever, this is some cute saying from some guy who lived 2000 years ago. Uh, then you dismiss it. But then when you look at what all the science is saying. And, you know, the terminology is different. We say my side bias um, and you see how people behave that. And then you're like, oh, man. And then you start looking around. You start looking at the behavior of the people around you and you start looking at your own behavior. And then you start to realize that, yes, Jesus. Was right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost uh, I, I like the distinction between science as a method and like scientism or, or science as almost like as a religion almost. And um and how like because that phrase was not packaged in a scientific in a scientific way that the that someone who um is very biased towards science would look at it and go this isn't a scientific statement so i'm going to discredit it whereas someone yep. a little more open to allegory or, or open to um the hitting the the deeper meaning behind it i and i think that man that that's one of the so basically what you guys are trying to do is you're taking a lot of this um well i guess it's not i mean it's not modern in the sense like like cutting edge like it just this is brain science that just happened two weeks ago this is stuff that was from like the 1970s i think you said but it just hasn't it hasn't diffused and people aren't taking um brain science and social science and psychology and all of these things and trying to make a a, a world view or a tool for walking through the world from all of these different um these different things like I, one of the stories that you tell a lot that i really love is talking with david sloan wilson about uh, you know, he's trying to diffuse ideas. And then you asked him if he had read the book, The Diffusion of Innovation. And he was like, oh, no, I never, never read that book. Right. And the, the, <laughs> yeah, that like these, these, uh, we get very specific instead of being more generalists and kind of picking and choosing from all the best categories and trying to just slam the books together and make it all fit into a worldview. Exactly. I mean, you know, all, uh, and I mean, you know, I had a conversation with, uh, we did a podcast yesterday with David Sloan Wilson. And then, you know, I've been talking with him a bunch and, you know, a lot of what, you know, how our thinking has evolved in the last few years, he talks about parallel universes. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of people who are talking about the same thing, but because we get hung up on terminology or symbols or tribal affiliation, we don't realize that we're talking about the same thing. And, you know, whether you're talking about, you know, Jesus of Nazareth or you're talking about the Buddha or you're talking about you know, Muhammad or the Hindus, or you're talking about some neuroscientist in a lab in San Diego, we're all trying to make sense of the same experience. 
right? Yeah. Like yeah. We've, we've humanity has always been trying to figure out this thing called reality. How do you build a society? How do we interact with each other? All of that. And, you know, if you're if you're really going to practice science as a method, then you have to be able to make sense of what all these people are doing, what they've been talking about and not get hung up on petty terminology and tribalism and really smash those books together. And in practice, part of it is, is that, you know, when you smash the things together, it actually becomes easier to figure things out. Because so much of how the human brain works and a lot of what Big Mike Bryan's dad talks about is pattern recognition. And you can't recognize a pattern when you only have one dot. Mm -hmm. Like If you're just staring at your culture and the way your culture says it, it's actually very hard to make sense of it. It's having to like look at, oh, you know, okay, so you got Jesus is telling the story about the Good Samaritan. And then you've got this thing called the Dunbar number. And then you've got this phenomenon called stereotyping. And then you got this whole other thing where Shakespeare talks about, you know, in Hamlet, that there's nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. And so you got these four different pieces that are from all these different disciplines. And yet, you know, they're all talking about the same thing. And then it's as you have all of these things noodling around in your head that you then start to like figure out that they're even though they seem like four separate dots, that they're actually connected. And that they're talking about the same thing, but in different ways. And that all of them can play a role in illuminating uh, a better playbook and a better worldview to help us all navigate it. And that's the real opportunity of the Internet in the 21st century is, is that, you know, we can have, you know, uh, people coming from lots of different perspectives, lots of different cultures. And that as we hash our, our differences out that we will evolve more and more wisdom and better tools for helping us navigate this environment. Yeah, and, and um, one of the things that really, that really uh, I, I resonate with a lot is this idea of fundamentalism that, that um, on both camps, sometimes we have uh, faith and reason or faith in science or religion and science put on opposite extremes, right? And, and really sometimes what it comes down to is how comfortable you are with doubt or with uh, with wandering into a new territory. It's for, it's literally like being comfortable with international travel. Like, have you ever yeah. have you ever been to another country where you had to just be okay, not understanding a lot of things, and and that you might you know you make a decision and you might be wrong, or you know you're trying to operate in that. And um and on both sides, the religious or the the science side, can can sometimes wander into um. Or, or at least be accused of this type of fundamentalism, and that, that's something you talk about, right? That, um, well, maybe you could just describe what you mean by fundamentalism, because I think maybe some people from the Catholic worldview are thinking something different if they're listening to this. Yeah, I. So you know, uh, I was born in Saudi. My parents have spent a lot of their time in the Middle East, and you know, there's a there's a, a Sufi scholar. Um, that I know. And he, he said he spends all of his time dealing with Islamic fundamentalists or not all of his time, but a large amount of it and sort of, you know, helping talk to these, you know, young, angry men and helping to try and de-radicalize them. And he had this great line that he said, which was that it takes five seconds to become a fundamentalist and a lifetime to become a Muslim. Mm. Um, and you know, it reminded me a lot of my own twenties, <laughs> um, 
And, you know, it reminded me a lot of there's Atul Gawande has this great speech he gave at Caltech about, you know, what it means to be a scientist. And he talks about how, you know, when he first went away to college, you know, his mind was blown. He was exposed to these new ideas. It was so exciting. And then the first thing he did with that knowledge was to go home and tell everybody back home how they were all wrong. And it was his job to correct the faults in their thinking. Gosh. And he's like, and I'm sure they really love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Same experience. Same experience, man. Like, um, so I went to a very Catholic university and um, it was a very similar experience because you feel like suddenly you're you're finding new truth that you hadn't realized before. And so then when you come back home and you feel like you're this Messiah figure that has come to like correct everyone's <laughs> like ev- all of your home priests liturgical wrongs. You're just like, you're doing the mass wrong. <laughs> I know you've been in seminary for 20 years, but, but I've been at, I've been at Catholic university for two. So like, you know, you just for correct. literally minutes for literally yeah. minutes. Yeah, yeah. Be studying yeah, this yeah. Thing. And now yeah. I, and then, you know, he says, and over time you come to realize that the scientific mind is an experimental one, not a litigious one. Mm. And, you know, that very much was my own journey. And, you know, um, the, the more I thought about this, the more, and, you know, just sort of reading people like John Haidt, John Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind, is about sort of that very self-righteous state. Yeah. And what you realize, you know, when you move around between enough different tribes is that, you know, fundamentalism is a psychology, not a, it's, a, it's, a, it's not an ideology, right? Mm-hmm. So you can look at, I mean, you know, look at, think about those dyed in the wool, like, you know, Bolshevik extremists or you know, the people under Pol Pot or, you know, the Nazis or, you know, uh, certain new atheist figures, right? Yeah, like yeah. there are there are plenty of people in lots of tribes around the world or certain social justice warriors who are just so convinced of the, the rightness of their cause and that they are the good guys and these other people are the bad guys and have this sense that like we're part of this grand historical mission um, and that if only everybody thought like us, that all the world's problems would be solved. Yeah, and and and, and if only, and a lot of times it's if only if only people would think rationally the way we are thinking rationally. You know, like like if only people would take if I could just if Alex Jones could just sit down with you and take you from from point one to point two to point three, like you would think the same way. And you're crazy to not like you're just being emotional and irrational to not agree to these points. Yeah, and I, and and crucially, that's a very particularly Western version of what fundamentalism looks like, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you um, if you're if you're trying to like what what these figures do is they spread fear in the name of righteousness, and if you think about you know say Joseph McCarthy or someone like that, you know Joseph McCarthy is justifying his behavior much that like that young lawyer. And he justifies it in terms of America, right? Because America is good. And so he wraps himself in the flag. And it's very much the same thing, you know, in the Salem witch trials, right? They justify their behavior in terms of, you know, Christianity. Um, You know, ISIS justifies it in terms of Islam, right? Islam is the answer. That's what all the fundamentalists say. And then, you know, in the West, if you're a figure who believes in the Enlightenment and sort of these secular values, then what you wrap yourself is in reason, Yeah. right? We are practicing reason, and you need to be reason, you know, practice reason. And the reality is is that the real thing that undermines all of that is that green belt idea of 
thinking and feeling are always linked, which is Descartes' error. Yeah, so um, t- t- talk about that for a second because that I think that's going to be foreign to a lot of people. And, and I'm trying – you know, I've been trying to um, assimilate the classical understanding of, you know, the human person as intellect and will um, with this idea of – of the intuition. So just talk, talk a little bit, because from the Christian worldview, um, you know, Aquinas and all these, which inherited a lot of philosophy and stuff from the Greeks and all this classical, um, philosophy, but then trying to reconcile that with the, this like experiential, well, I mean, a scientific, um, advancement in our understanding of how our brains actually work, uh, not just theoretically. And it reminds, it reminds me a lot of, um, maybe you could touch on this too like the the difference in uh an economist's worldview of how the world works mm-hmm. and someone like Jonathan Haidt or someone like um like Kahneman um yeah thinking fast and slow right Daniel Kahneman yep so yeah so i think the the first thing to realize is that you know words are labels that we come up with and you know everybody's had this experience on the internet where you're using a word one way and then somebody else is a totally different definition of yeah, it yeah. like we i'm talking about capitalism you're talking about capitalism but we get a little bit into the conversation and it's clear that your understanding of capitalism and my understanding of capitalism are not the same. Yeah, a horrible experience. My freshman year of college, we're sitting around the dinner table and this girl was talking about how um, she 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 thought that she actually was a communist. And, and then when we were like, <laughs> we were like, well, what, what makes you think that? And she's like, well, I just feel like we should just share more of our stuff with people. <laughs> I was like, I do not think that means what you think it means. Uh, <laughs> Like I don't even think I understand what communism means, but but I'm pretty sure it doesn't mean that. Like I'm pretty sure it doesn't yep. mean to share stuff with people. Yeah, and and I think the you know it's this reason is one of those words that means totally different things to different people. And you know I think that you know if you let's look at some Enlightenment figures um, like say Ben Franklin, right, and how Ben Franklin used words like reason. Mm-hmm. So. Ben Franklin, there's a great story, John Haidt tells it in The Happiness Hypothesis from Ben Franklin's autobiography, where he talks about being on this ship, and, you know, he's headed over to England. And at this point, Ben Franklin is a vegetarian, he has his moral principles, you know, he believes that, you know, he shouldn't, you know, take part in the killing or the taking of other life, and so, you know, but on the other side of the ship, there are a bunch of his fellow passengers who are catching cod. And they're preparing cod in the way that that New England way that he remembers from his childhood. And it just smells so good. Mm. And so, you know, he says to himself, no, I can't. I'm a vegetarian. I have my principles. I'm not going over there. But it continues to smell so good. And so he wanders over just to, you know, I mean, we've all done this, right? You wander over just to see what's going on in the dessert case, right? Like, yeah, yeah. So we're just going to have a quick shifty. So he wanders over, and then he notices that as they're opening up the, the belly of these cod, that there are all these little fish inside the cod. And so then he says, well, these cod are murdering all these tiny little fish. And if I want to preserve life, then I should eat the big fish in order to protect the little fish. Yeah. 
And he says, it's an awfully convenient thing to be a reasonable creature because one can convince oneself of whatever one has a mind to do. So Ben Franklin believes in reason, but he certainly doesn't believe that the human capacity for reason is somehow divorced from emotion or feeling. He understands that they're inextricably linked. And so... I think that you know the, what what Ben what the a lot of the Enlightenment figures probably meant by reason is today what we would talk about being reasonable, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and you know that's different from rationalizing, where you're able to give reasons for why you feel the way that you feel, and those reasons can be endlessly complicated. Um, and a lot of people, the, the sort of the fundamentalist figures who run around talking about reason, 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 they're actually the most unreasonable people but they just uh, endlessly rationalize their basic prejudices. So how, how, can, how would you um, advise someone if they're just hearing this for the first time? It's like you're basically telling someone that they can't, they can't with certainty say that they're being rational at any point in time. So how, how do they na- what, what do they make of that data? Like how do, they, how do they move forward or how do they make sure that they are being reasonable in some, you know, how, what's the right relationship with your emotions how do you how do you well, make decisions it, it fundamentally changes the question you should ask yourself mm-hmm. right so it moves the question from am i being emotional to how am i being emotional mm-hmm. uh the question is not whether your thinking is being shaped by your feelings it's what feelings are shaping your thinking okay um and so you know john height has this uh, great metaphor that comes off so so you mentioned daniel kahneman daniel kahneman this is back Kahneman and Tversky are back in the 70s. And, you know, economists have this idea, you know, um, or this idea came into economics. It's actually not what Adam Smith believed, by the way. Mm -hmm. Um, So Adam Smith is often, you know, regarded as the founding father of capitalism. And, you know, he wrote two books, uh, The Wealth of Nations, and then this book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And, you know, if you, Russ Roberts has this great book um, called How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life. And it's all about him as an economist, you know, finally reading Adam Smith's other book. Um, and he says, you know, most economists haven't read this book and they should. Or they don't because, even know it exists, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and when, you, when you read it, you get a very, very different picture of what Adam Smith thought, right? It would be like, if you only read Leviticus and thought you understood what the Bible was about, right? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, so when you read the theory of moral sentiments, you know, the picture that emerges of, you know, Adam Smith says things like, you know, wealth just isn't going to make you that happy, like, Mm. you know, past your certain material needs, like, and you're like, really? This is the founder of capitalism said that? And, you know, the opening line of the book is about humans being altruistic, and you're like, really? Um, So the, the picture that Smith has of human nature is nuanced, complex, it recognizes that we have all these conflicting impulses, um, and self-interest is what emerges from sort of us thinking through all those different perspectives until we've figured out what really serves our self-interest. But Roberts has a great example in there where he of Jean Valjean from Les Miserables, mm. where you know Jean Valjean's material self-interest is to lie and let somebody else go to jail for him for stealing that loaf of bread. But his psychological self-interest is to be able to live with himself and to live with, you know, uh, the knowledge of, of God, right? Yeah. And so he turns himself in 
because he decides that that's what he needs. Mm. Um, so, you know, our self-interest is actually in the eyes of Adam Smith is this quite complicated thing. But, you know, economists, that doesn't make for good math. Um, and, you know, you need a, a tidy set of assumptions. And so what emerges is this caricature of humanity called Homo economicus, where just because it's tidy and an easier way to think about this, we reduce everything down to self-interest and down to human beings as this rational creature, uh, which is sometimes called Homo economicus. And uh, Kahneman and Tversky in the 1970s, they were Israeli psychologists, um, and they were just finding out all the ways in which that wasn't true, we have all these weird cognitive biases, um, and you know that those ideas then ended up, you know, creating this whole new school of economics called behavioral economics. Um, and you know, ultimately, what it means is, and this is the really unpleasant thing, is is that it means that a lot of the work that has been done is bad and will mm. need to be out. But that's not something that academics are going to want to do because. Yeah that's your job and that's your livelihood and that's what you built your career on. And, it, um, and Kahneman was, I think one of the ideas that's really sticky is this idea that uh, the classical understanding of the, the charioteer and the chariot or the horses, I guess uh, like that, the, the reasonable, our, our rational nature is driving the rest of our emotions and can be in charge of the rest of our emotions. But then this other idea that I think, I think it's Kahneman comes up with, or I've just heard often uh, is this idea of the rider and the elephant that in fact, like the rider sitting at the top of an elephant has way less control than like a, a Roman charioteer over the emotions and the passions and all those things. And that they're always at play. Yep, and so that that the rider and elephant metaphor comes from John Height, um, but it's Height summing up uh, Kahneman's work in a much so you, a much stickier, contagious way, I guess. Yeah, it's amazing uh, when Height really wants to move all of this science, he turns it into a simple story, yeah. a lot like Jesus. <laughs> Are uh, you Height is Jesus reincarnated? I think. <laughs> Well, we, we do call, you know, we lovingly in mixed metal arts, yeah. we call we talk about the Holy Trinity of cultural evolution, yeah. which is John Haidt, David Sloan Wilson, and Joe Henrik. Yeah. And uh, there's a scientific New Testament out there, which is these four gospels, which is the four books that they wrote. Yeah. And that's, you know, just a packaging marketing thing <laughs> to help move these ideas, but, um, and give people a toehold into, if you're going to read something, read those four books. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, it, it, the, the, the point is, is that there in general, the more and more you look across the science, the more you realize there is a lot of reinventing the wheel. And even the diffusion of innovations, which you talked about earlier, you know, I, I read the diffusion of innovations. It's, you know, 600 pages or something. And, you know, the more you noodle over what it's really saying and you're really thinking about it, you're like, it kind of sounds like missionary work. Like, it sounds like you're saying that ideas move through missionary work. I kind of feel like this also was already figured out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it just wasn't packaged in a, in a scientific 600-page tome. You know, that's, that's the official way to get an idea like that out there. But the irony is that, you know, I mean, the diffusion of innovations is an idea that didn't diffuse. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I love that. I love – I think that's hilarious. So – Yeah. What, what were and you... I mean, and that's, and that's because – you know, the the problem is, is that the scientific style of writing is actually unscientific. Yeah. yeah. Because it doesn't respond to the evidence of what we know about how ideas actually move. And so, but you've, 
so, man, I, oh, so many places I want to go, but uh, you're a tutor. You tutor still as well? Like you tutor kids? That's my day job. Yeah, that's awesome. So uh, you, because you've had your hand constantly in teaching, I feel like you, you see that very immediately, like all the time that, that, you know, when you're, I feel like teachers see that teachers know this innately, but then there's still among teachers. When you talk to teachers, like there's uh, we hold up these people that write these huge um, research papers and all of these very tech. It's just so weird that we can, on the one hand, really value great and amazing teachers or communicators, but on the other hand, have this whole world of people that look down on a more popular um, a more popular style, right? Like, um, this happens in the Catholic world, you know, you have the real philosophers, the scholarly philosophers or theologians, but then you have, um, these, these books that kind of package it in an easier to understand. Um, you know, we have a Scott Hahn, who's a brilliant, brilliant man, but he's very famous author. And, you know, some people like poo poo on him because they're like, Oh, you're just, you're dumbing down at all. It's, it's not written, um, as technical. It doesn't have as much nuance and all this stuff. I find that so, so interesting because I, I'm often, you know, having a foot in both worlds, like trying to teach, but also trying to like navigate through that world and that, and those weird, again, like emotions about all of those different things. Well, and I mean, you know, I think it's, it's in all cases, it's a dysfunctional system. Um, because, you know, I mean, we're, we're rather than us working together and trying to solve the problem together it just becomes, you know, this territoriality and it's massively self-defeating. And, you know, I think a much better way to think about this, you know, David Sloan Wilson talks about the science to narrative chain, right? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's okay, great. So let's imagine that you've, you've got someone like David and, you know, he's gone out and he's figured out all this stuff about evolution and then, you know, but that's the problem that he's been focused on and he's gotten really, really good at it. Meanwhile, you have Brian Callen, right? Brian Callen has spent all of his time uh, trying to figure out how to entertain people, how to grab their attention, how to make it really relatable and really connect to people's lives because that's what great comedy does. And, you know, the, the, my job is to really just bridge that and, you know, be there and help, you know, the two of them have a productive conversation so that all of David's great work can then really diffuse and really move through things like comedy. Um, but there's, you know, this is an old, old pattern of like, you know, the, the scholar thinking that they're better than the popularizer and then the popularizer thinking that the scholar is out of touch. Mm. Um, and, you know, you find that again and again, I mean, you know, think about, you know, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's happened in every, and I think this is why words like religion are so problematic. It's happened in every belief system, Mm -hmm. whether it's science or, you know, Christianity or Islam or whatever it may be. Um, there's, there's always been the dusty scholar who thinks that he's superior. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a great, there's a great story. So, um, Zhuangzi, who's the uh, sort of the, the the second big figure in Taoism, um, has a story where you know the the big the all the big scholars they come to Zhuangzi and they say Zhuangzi you're so smart like you know you should come work with us in the palace in the ivory tower, um, and he says you know I've heard that inside the imperial palace there is a turtle that is a thousand years old, and it's 
dead and it's being wrapped and preserved in silk. And, you know, this is the people in the Imperial City are like, oh, yes, this great turtle. It's a great relic and blah, 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 blah. And Chuangsa says, you know, do you think that the turtle would rather be dead, wrapped in silk and a thousand years old or alive and in the mud? And they say, probably alive and in the mud. And he goes, Chuangsa feels the same way as the turtle. <laughs> and so then he doesn't take the job. And I think that's, it's not, it's not, it's not a healthy system. Hmm. And, you know, um, and this is a pattern that is just one of those patterns that recurs again and again. The other story like that that I love is uh, from Gulliver's Travels and the st story of the Laputins and the Balnabarbi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember this. Um, and so, you know, there's, uh, and, and when, when Jonathan Swift wrote this in the 1700s, he was already parodying the Royal Academy. Yeah. It was a situation that, that everyone reading it would have known a hundred percent that he's making fun of these, um, these philosopher Kings who, who have tattered clothes and can't take care of, they can't pay their own bills, but they're, but they're, uh, holding up philosophy and smarts and academics higher than, um, than like practical knowledge. Yeah, and I think it's massively unhealthy. I mean, the 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 divorce of theory from practice, like it doesn't help anyone. I mean, you have you know the 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 pure theoreticians who can't do anything practical and can't do anything that. And then, you know, um one of the things that always stuck with me was Nikola Tesla talking about uh Thomas Edison. Hmm. And that, you know, Thomas Edison was so obsessed with being practical that he did everything in the most ineffective way huh. and that if he used even a little bit of theory that, you know, he would have been so much more effective. And, you know, it's like all of these things. It's, 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 uh, the, the, to, you know, you need both and, you know, it takes wisdom to know the difference as to when you should use each one. But like, you know, people become obsessed with one thing or the other and then, you know, you just develop a myopia and that becomes problematic. So what, what would you give if someone listening, what would, what practically can someone do to avoid maybe this, maybe we call it this more fundamentalist thinking or like this trap of getting really, really, um, yeah, myopic about a way of thinking like what, what I, I always feel like it's hard to to pinpoint something practical other than just arguing and yelling at this person. <laughs> like, like it's hard to, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't, it, I often feel like I'm attracted to the friends who are more open-minded and, and can do this, but I, I often don't know how to, cause you start pushing on, on how someone's thinking and the cultural baggage that they might have or the cultural situation that they have inherited. And it gets really uncomfortable for them, right? Or, or mm -hmm. just like the conversation in general gets uncomfortable. So how, how do you bridge that? you know, people are going home for Christmas and stuff. How do you bridge that with, um, like start that conversation? Do you just start telling all the stories from all the books or like, I think the, I think the most important thing to understand, you know, I mean, you've, you've talked about values like sacredness. Um, and, and you know, there, there, we all have these different moral intuitions, but the core intuition that is the same in all groups is fairness. Mm. You can say anything as long as you're fair. And so, you know, I mean, this is why South Park gets away with so much is because they make fun of everyone and they make fun of themselves. Yeah. 
And so I think that's the most important thing is, you know, and this is something that, you know, I've sort of evolved from working with kids, right? Like I inevitably am telling kids many things that they don't want to confront, you know, that they uh, are, have been responsible all along for their academic performance, Mm -hmm. that it's their behaviors, their attitudes, all of these things need to change. And these are the last things that any teenager wants to hear, right? So how do you tell those things in a way that a teenager can hear? Well, firstly, you make fun of yourself, Mm -hmm. right? Like you make fun of yourself all the time and uh, so that you don't feel threatening. You're not saying that you're any better than them. You're reducing any sense of a power dynamic. And if anything, you're humbling yourself and making yourself lower than them. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is to just talk about your own failings. And that opens up the possibility for the other person to reflect and to be able to confront these things. And then, you know, in reality, I think the other thing, too, is that much of this comes down to counterinsurgency. Um, Mm. So when you're when you're working with a kid, you're working with the kid, but you're really working with the whole family and the, the whole community and the whole environment. So that ultimately everyone is being bathed in these ideas and getting these things. And so it, the, the question is always like, who is the crazy person, right? Yeah. And if, if when, when, when I come into a house, I'm the crazy person, right? <laughs> like they're like, oh, you're saying like I can do anything if I put my mind to it. Oh, you're saying that if I actually tried and like analyze my mistakes, I do better. <laughs> And they're like, whatever, like I heard that. <laughs> and then, you know, and then what you have to do is you start winning everybody over mm-hmm. and you start, you know, getting people to open up and share their stories and start changing some behaviors until ultimately the kid is the crazy person. Mm. And it's like, duh, of course this has been your issue all along. Of course you need to analyze your mistakes. Of course you need to write, read the book before you write the essay. And then, you know, then that social pressure is what helps flip people. So I think part of it is also being realistic about, you know, who is going to be the effective change agent in that person's life. Mm. Because, you know, like, realistically, like, you know, it's it's it, like the advantage that I have over parents is that I'm a total stranger. Yeah. I'm not your parents, you don't, you're not worried about, do you love me? Like none of those, no, none of those questions are involved. And like, you know, doing these things with my own parents and trying to expose them to these ideas, like I have to be much more circumspect and direct. And with my own dad, I'm just like, oh my God, we had this great conversation. This book is so great. I think you'd really enjoy this book. And then allowing him to hear it from other people so that he reaches the conclusions on his own time and in his own way. And and the whole time being sure that you're not falling into the trap of thinking uh, that it just it's purely reason, that you can just be reasonable with someone and that's the only motivator, right? Like I think that's one of the big things I take away a lot from you from hearing your conversations is that uh, I, I love the story of um, Don't Mess With Texas and how they yeah. – Instead of, you know, they could have just gone to everyone in Texas and did this national campaign of like, when you litter, it causes problems for our country or for our state. Well, the, this, the country state of Texas, um, <laughs> but, but, but they, you know, instead they appeal to emotion to this narrative, um, 
to try to move that idea instead of just trying to be purely rational from a model that like everyone's perfectly rational. If we're just give them rational uh, arguments, then they will accept it. Yeah. I mean, you're trying to win over the elephant and the elephant has all sorts of needs, right? The elephant wants to feel heard. The elephant wants to feel safe. The elephant wants to feel understood. Like very often there's some, you know, like, I mean, you know, uh, and, you know, I mean, I think what's been exciting about the conversations and how they've been evolving with Brian is that increasingly we've been talking about our dads um, because that is so much of it is, is that so much of this, like, you know, Brian, you know, is, uh, you know, like he said this great thing where he was like, you know, uh, he was like, I would quote, you know, all these libertarian thinkers and all that sort of stuff. And he was like, that's because I was defending my dad. Mm. Like he'd gotten these ideas from his dad. And so, you know, all of those feelings were wrapped up. And, you know, um, it's a guy in the mixed mental arts community, Dave Colin. And he says, you know, the thing about racists is there are people who love their dad so much they can't admit their dad was wrong about anything. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. I've met some people like that <laughs> yeah and yeah. you know it's, it's it comes perfectly... from a good place it comes from a good place yeah i mean you're just like you have these strong feelings and then you know you have to like learn to separate these things out and i think that's the thing is is that you know it's uh it's the the i mean what does it take to do this work well you know i think that playbook was pretty much figured out you know two thousand years ago it requires humility it requires turn taking it requires um you know, little stories and that very often the best way is actually not to directly challenge people like, you know, Jesus was, I'm sure, way smarter than this lawyer, right? Who he told the story of the Good Samaritan to, but he doesn't, Jesus doesn't do a full frontal assault on the lawyer, right? Yeah. He doesn't like, you can't, someone who is litigious, you can't out litigate. You can't. Yeah. Right. So, what you have to do is you have to have that experimental mind and be playful and just be like, oh, you know, what do you think the law says? Oh, you think it says that? Okay, so here, I'm going to tell you a story and then you tell me what you think. Oh, okay, there you go. And then he's planted that seed and then the lawyer goes away and the lawyer does whatever. But it's not just for the lawyer. It's also that all these other people are standing around watching this experience. And it may be that ultimately it was you know, that crowd that really got the story rather than the lawyer. Mm. Um, and, you know, we're all going to have to be, you know, there's a lot of uncomfortable conversations to be had. And, you know, we're all going to have to be super experimental, try things out, see yeah. what works, and then compare notes and just keep on evolving better tools and a better playbook for how to better have these conversations. Yeah, yeah. Okay, there's one last question that I want, I, that I haven't heard you talk much of, but I've, I'm always curious is what, how do you think of, and especially after reading all these books and how do you think of doubt? Because, uh, I f feel intuitively that on both sides, if we're talking about science and religion on both sides, um, I feel like what can oftentimes, um, radicalize someone to be more fundamentalist, either sci a science perspective or a religion perspective is this fear of doubt, the fear, of, mm -hmm. the fear of, um, I'm not certain. And, and so two stories, I mean, I, um, I gave a talk to a bunch of parents and 
um, I was going, you know, answering some common objections that high schoolers have and just kind of saying, here's like three common questions that high schoolers have. Here's some like arguments for, you know, answering these questions or whatever. And afterwards, this parent came up to me and was was very unnerved by the whole. I mean, it was just like a 45 minute lecture on these three things. And her issue was she felt like I was casting doubt that I was by just raising the question. um, She felt like I was in some ways just poisoning Christianity for her. And she was like, I am, I disagree with your approach entirely. And if this is what you're doing with my high schooler, I don't want them to be a part of it at all. And I was, Mm. and man, I was like, really, you know, this person was very emotionally, um, upset about the idea of doubt and i said well we don't every time we we talk to high schoolers we don't just say here are all these reasons you should doubt your faith we just say like you know every now and then we'll say hey this is a common question that comes up and like here's the answer for it uh and she was like no you should just shouldn't talk about that at all and 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 when i asked her like well what what should we talk about she's like i think you should just talk about why we are we are so joyful um, as Christians and everything is basically everything's great and happy. And then on the other side, I remember watching this video of Neil deGrasse Tyson. I think it's called like the edge of the unknown or, um, the limit of reason or something like that. And he was, (laughs) and he was going, he was going through systematically through all of these, um, scientists from, you know, the enlightenment or whatever, and who were, who were, you know, also religiously minded people. And he would, he would read about how they had all of this wonder about the world and they would figure out things and they would, um, they would test things. But whenever they got to the limit of what they could know, whenever they got to like a problem they couldn't solve, they would suddenly, he would read a quote of them saying like, oh, how, how grand and wonderful is God? And he, Mm. and he read that as giving up. Like he read that, he read that the way that they were handling maybe uncertainty or doubt or the edge of their knowledge, he read this like, um, this kind of like Christian, um, pronouncement of like, Oh wow. You know, God is so wonderful and mysterious as like, just, just giving up and copping out. And so like on both, both sides, I feel like there's, um, this uneasiness with how we handle doubt. And I know that scientists and Christians, especially fundamentalist Christians compared to, I don't know, my experience as a Catholic, um, there, there are, man, there are competing, I don't know, strategies to deal with doubt, but also like that just seems to be for me in my experience, the central issue, uh, like, are you comfortable with doubt? So I don't know. I, I just always wonder, I remember at one point, um, tweeting, I think Jonathan Hyde and asking him like, where does just objective truth and certainty and doubt fit into all of this? And, um, but obviously on Twitter, you can't like <laughs> talk, talk as, you know, like I was probably expecting a little too much from him, but I don't know. What do you, what, like, what, how do you think about that or think about doubt Hunter? Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, I had uh, a conversation yesterday with, um, with Sean McCoy, who has the come to the table podcast that he just started. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Sean is somebody who came to Christianity later in life. Um, and you know, one of the things that, uh, we talked about a lot is, you know, Isaac Newton believed that God had written two books, um, that one of them was the Bible and that the other one was the universe. Mm. And that in order to really, you know, begin to even sort of approximate understanding God, you had to read deeply in both. Mm. 
And a lot of what we talked about in terms of, you know, the, the divide and the forces of division between science and religion, um, you know, is that on both sides, there's a lot of fear. And it's the fear to really read in one of those other books. Because what if you read and you find that it's not there? Like, what if you as, and you know, what if you as a Christian, like really look into the science and then you conclude that God doesn't exist? Or what if, you know, you are a scientist and you read closely in the Bible and you come to find that actually a lot of this ancient wisdom is stuff that was known 2,000 years ago mm-hmm. and that we didn't actually, you know, we aren't so smart and that, you know, we actually just got lost in arrogance. Mm. And that's scary. But it's also, that's, that's a weak faith mm-hmm. on either part. Yeah, It's a weak faith in, in God or it's a weak faith in the scientific principle. Um, and, you know, ultimately I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, the old parable of the house that was built on sand versus the house that was built on rock. And there's a lot of people whose faith in either God or in the scientific method is built on sand and it's not really a sturdy faith. And if your if your faith in whatever it is that you believe in and however you navigate the world has been battle tested enough times, then you're you move from being afraid of these things to being curious. Yeah. Because you know that the closer you look, the more you will find and the more you will discover. And that it's that's the fun of the journey is that is being surprised by these new aspects of that investigation and that journey that you might not have realized. Yeah, it's it's like the doubt. Yeah, the doubt makes makes everything else exciting and worth it. And and that's how I mean for me, that's how I know that I'm going into an area um, where I'm going to learn something, learn something new, or learn something that's uh, that I didn't. I remember there was an interview where I think it was like Billy Graham's granddaughter or something, and they asked her um, in all the years of Billy Graham's life, do you think Billy Graham ever doubted like the, <laughs> the existence of God? And she immediately, without a split second, was like. No, never. And I was like, bullshit! Like, just, I was like, <laughs> no! I was like, no! Like, what a horrible, what a horrible representation of, like, Christianity yeah. that, like, that is not, I mean, it, like, uh, yeah, just that, that, that doubt makes every, the fact that I might be wrong makes, makes my decision, uh, like, I have some skin in the game. Because if it, if it was just so easy to be 100% certain about, I don't know, I just, I feel like the doubt uh, or the go, venturing off into those areas makes it all exciting and exhilarating. And um, yeah, it's hard for people to, yeah, to, to, to deal with that. I think sometimes. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's a deeply on like, I mean, you know, so part of how I, you know, sort of explain the whole fundamentalism thing too, is that, listen, there are fundamentalists sell brain ice cream. That's what they do, yeah. right? And there are 31 flavors of fundamentalism, uh, but they all sell delicious confirmation bias. Mm. You know, <laughs> it's all, you know, you go, you listen to your favorite uh, fundamentalist thinker, and, you know, they just endlessly tell you that you're right, we're the good guys, you know, we've got it all figured out. If only everybody thought like us, everything would be so great. And you're like, man, this is delicious. My brain loves this. 
And then, you know, what <laughs> you and I, Edmund, um, Jonathan Haidt and all of these other people are selling a much less marketable product. Vegetables. We're selling vegetables, yeah, which yeah. is cognitive dissonance, you know, uncertainty, doubt, you know, and it's like, it really is like vegetables. And when you first taste it, you're like, this is gross. I, my brain does not like this. I never want this again. Yeah. These people are terrible. And, you know, I mean, my own sort of, uh, you know, road to Damascus moment, right? When the scale falls from your eyes, it is not pleasant. No. Um, and, you know, when you move out of that sort of narrow certainty of thinking, of being litigious and thinking you have all the answers to like, man, I know nothing. <laughs> it sucks. It's a terrible transitional moment. But the main thing is that it is a transitional moment. Like you don't have to stay there. And it is when you move past that first five seconds of being a fundamentalist to that lifetime journey. And more and more you acquire a taste for broccoli. Mm. And you're like, actually, this is good for me. I like this. It's much more interesting. There's a lot more going on. And you seek those experiences out. So that, you know, you start to become really, you know, and ultimately you develop a distaste for the saccharine confirmation bias experience. Well, I just to stretch the analogy to its limits, I think also you learn how to prepare vegetables. <laughs> you learn yeah. how to you learn how to do that because, I, man, I think more and more as the Facebook algorithms are just trying to to surround us by things we're going we're going to like and the social media is surrounding us by stuff um it already knows we're going to agree with and and not hate i think more and more it it's going to become a um it's going to become a virtue of the modern man to practice the habit of putting himself uh, in in places that he's not comfortable with or around yep. people that he's not he doesn't agree with and i just i think that's such a necessary i mean i just like pray that my kids you know learn just that in and of itself of like i mean i can't tell you how many times i sit in a room full of people and we're complaining about the you know i'm hearing people talk about the culture of death or this like you know the <laughs> the world you know this world out there that's out to get us and and like we're talking about these people talking about atheists and or non-christians and all these different people and like i just want to like stop the whole conversation and, and say like you haven't talked to someone who's not just like you in both race, religion, and idea, like in years. Like you don't know anyone. Like you don't know anyone that's a liberal. Like you don't know. Yep. Yeah. So, or you don't know anyone that's that's Muslim or more. Like just. Um, so, anyways. Well. Yeah. No. And 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 I think that's the thing is is that absolutely I think that you know, uh, like we're we're at that that place where there is a real awareness of the problem of echo chambers right yeah and on the other side of being aware of the problem of echo chambers is that yes it does become it's going to become distasteful to people that like you just hang out in your echo chamber and that ultimately when it's all about like a lot of this is about competing for status right and you know like the billy graham sort of approach where it's like I never had a moment of doubt. I've always done it, and I always knew it, and I can quote the Bible more than you, and all of that, right? And essentially, you know, Billy Graham was rewarded for that behavior. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, there's a group of people who sit around him, and they're like, wow, that's great. That's how a Christian should be, right? But it is this very superficial, 
like media version of Christianity where you can cultivate this image of like, it's, I mean, you know, Billy Graham is the, you know, sort of the Kim Kardashian airbrushed version of a Christian. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we Photoshopped this really a lot so that it looks like you never doubted, you know, you always have the perfect Bible passage, all that sort of well, stuff. Well, yeah. They, so when, when, uh, I think Therese of Lisieux, who's like a, a very popular saint, like mystic and all this stuff, when, when her sisters, when they published her autobiography, her sisters edited out the parts where she was struggling with atheism. Because right. they they wanted to airbrush it, and it was only years later that they added that back in. Or a similar story with uh, with Mother Teresa, right? Like, and wanting to remove the doubt because no, we can't we can't let people um, think that that doubt is okay or that the, the, that this is something that's common. When when in fact everyone at some point like really has to you know go back home, close the door, go into their room and just go, is everything I'm saying true? <laughs> like, is this, do right. I actually believe this? Do I really believe this? You know? And I, and I think that's the point is, is that, you know, all these rumbles are already there and, you know, you hear people like talking a lot about how they want authenticity. They want authenticity. They want authenticity. Mm -hmm. They have a problem with the superficial photoshopped, you know, billboard models, right? They have a problem with a lot of these sort of, in, you know, inauthentic cardboard cutout people. So there's a, there's a hunger there already. And, you know, I mean, that's why, I mean, specifically, you know, increasingly, you know, I just have realized that most of my job is midwifing. And <laughs> that's, that's you know, I mean, well, and I mean, you know, my, wife, my wife's a midwife. Well, she's, oh, she is? she's studying to be one. We've had all of our kids at home. Well, let me tell you, she's uh, so she's, actually in that way. I'm more of a midwife than my wife is because I've delivered, I've delivered more babies than yeah. my wife has actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really in the and, and I mean I do think that that's that's what we're doing here. Yeah, is that you know I mean it's and Socrates' mother was a midwife, and that's very much how he saw his role was that these things were already there, and his job was to midwife it into existence. And, you know, all of um, there's a great quote from William Gibson that the future exists. It's just unevenly distributed. Mm. And, you know, all these pieces are out there. You know, a lot of the science has been out there for 40 years. The even before that, you know, I mean, these many of these ideas are 2000 or more years old. Um, and so really, our job is just to connect the dots and to midwife in this culture um, and, you know, it's going to happen. We just have to, we can just make the process a little bit easier. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for being on Hunter. If people, uh, if people want to get into the dojo, where should they go? Uh, they on, we're very distinguished. We have two iTunes feeds, Ooh. one of which is broken. Um, so they should go to mixed metal arts official oh. and, uh, that's the one that updates regularly. And then I didn't, uh, I didn't even know that. Yeah, well, it's a it's a it's a real. Just, is this just happening? This just in? No, it broke. the The feed broke back, back in July, and we've managed to fix it on like every other platform, mm. pretty much. But like the iTunes one is still broken. We just have to like get Apple to actually respond to us. Yeah, and uh, you know that's apparently they have other things to think about. What are they like, thinking? 
This yeah, exactly. The most important, the most important work to be done right here. Exactly. We just need uh, a Steve Jobs to, uh, you know, speak from beyond the grave and be like, "Fix the mixed mental arts <laughs> iTunes." Yeah. This is my last will and testament. This is very important. <laughs> so people should go there. You have a website too. Yep, mixedmentalarts.online, uh, which people like Brian and Toya have been helping us build. Like, there's lots of ways to get involved in the community to help move these ideas. And then uh, the Straight A Conspiracy is available on Amazon, on paperback, Kindle, and audiobook on Audible. Nice. Well, thanks so much, Hunter, for being on. Uh, man, this was I could talk about all this stuff for hours, and I just really appreciate you coming on and exposing us to uh, all these ideas and diffusing them. Well, I appreciate that, Evan. And listen, these ideas made a big difference in my life in making me, uh, I think, a better person. And uh, anything I can do to pay that forward, I'm happy to do. And I think that you know, there's a really exciting opportunity for a reconciliation between science and religion and um i'm excited to see what emerges and evolves there and thanks so much for being a part of that yeah anytime thanks hunter talk to you soon